I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but is heard when he cries to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Those are verses 22 to 26 of Psalm 22, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, July the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look in in Deuteronomy. It's a very brief look because we've jumped from chapter 3 to chapter 31 (laughs) overnight. Uh, We're going to be in verses 7 to 13, and then in chapter 24, or no, sorry, 31, (laughs) 7 to 13, jump forward to verse 24, and then read from there to chapter 32, verse 4. Then in Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 25, verses 15 to 31, and then Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. So first we're we're, um, in this this, uh, passage from Deuteronomy. We're getting to sort of the end of Deuteronomy, and so Moses is giving instructions for the future. Um, the first thing he's going to do is give instructions to Joshua. So Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. And those are the same admonitions God gives him at the beginning of uh, the book of Joshua in chapter 1. So, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. So he's not saying you're going to conquer the land. He says you're going to go into the land that the Lord has promised. Because that's the way they need to step into this. They need to step into it with the idea that God promised this, so you're just going in. It's not so much the conquering, it's going in. And you shall put them in possession of it. So the Lord's giving it to them based on his promise, and you're going to give it to them. It's the Lord who goes before you. He'll be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Simple as that. You know, it's, it's your job to lead them. And that's all your job is. The Lord's going to do the work. All you have to do is go. And then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths. So we're talking about the the Sabbath year, when when the land is restored. Uh, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So what Moses is saying here is, is, I don't know where this is going to be. Moses didn't know that Jerusalem would be the capital. But So what he's saying is, when you come, when you come to the Feast of Booths, and, and all Israel comes because it's a commandment that you do that, then read the law before them. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So it's it's what we see in Ezra, for instance, when when the people are all gathered after the exile, they've come back, they gather, and, and then Ezra reads, and people give the sense of the law, they explain things as he goes along, and what you see is a great repentance falling on the people. Now, that's it. That, that's actually not at um, the Feast of Booths when that happens, but that's the point of what's to happen there. 
the first time in a long time that people had heard the word of the Lord, and they recognized then how they had deviated. So that's the point of doing this on a regular basis. So it's, it's every seven years at the Feast of Booths that they're going to read the law just to make sure that it's not lost over that period of time. When Moses had finished the words, writing the words of the law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. That's an interesting way of saying that, but it's also what Joshua says at the end of his book when he says, choose. As for me and my house, I will, we will serve the Lord. And the people say the same. And he says, that will stand as a witness against you. And what do these two statements mean, this witness against you thing? And it, and it doesn't mean for condemnation. It means for conviction. It means that, that the, the Word of God, you've committed yourself to do the Word of God, and now whenever you refuse or fail to do it, then the book stands as a witness. And, and as Joshua said, your statement of faith, your commitment to serving the Lord, stands as a witness against you when you fail to do it. So you've taken a stand. That's a good thing. Now stand. <clears throat> For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. He, he, Moses was very cynical about the people. He had a lot of right to be. Um, Anybody who leads God's people has a right to be cynical about them um, at some level because, well, we all fail. Even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you'll surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And then days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. I mean, he's looking at this crowd and, and he's thinking, God, this is going to go so badly. After I'm gone, it is going to go badly. It's going to completely fall apart. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So Moses, even though he looks at the people and he's very cynical about what's going to happen next, because he knows a lot about human nature, having experienced a lot of human nature, he, <laughs> like tons of it with, with the number of people he had to lead. So at the end of this, he looks back and, and, and all he can do is to say, you're going to be unfaithful. But then he goes on to say, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So he's not like us is the point. And the, the point is, is that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, all the things that he proclaimed in Exodus 34. And so, so the future of this endeavor, Moses says, doesn't rely upon your faithfulness. I wish it did, but you're not going to be. It does, however, rely on God's faithfulness because it's his promise. And he swore on oath by himself when that smoking pot went between the pieces with Abraham way back in Genesis. So Moses is counting ultimately on the Lord. He looks at the people and he sees certain things, and then he turns his praise to the Lord and proclaims something totally different because he knows who he is and who he has been. In the gospel today, Jesus, remember, is, is now 
his pronounced woes on the leadership in the temple, and then they've come out to the Mount of Olives after he said that the temple's not going to stand. So they come out, and now they're at the Mount of Olives. He's speaking privately to his disciples here. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now these things, if you read Josephus and the history of what happens within this next season of time before the destruction of the temple, you'll see some of the things that Jesus says here actually come true in that period of time. Josephus tells us about events that that are that precede the destruction of the temple, but that, that are visible in the sight of all those who are in the land. So he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his clothes. In other words, get out of Dodge. As soon as you see these things, get out of Dodge because it's going to turn in a really bad direction. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, harder to flee is the point. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Why would, it, why would it matter? The winter would be harder, but the Sabbath, what's that got to do with anything? Well, you can only go a certain distance on the Sabbath. So even in your flight, you're going to be keeping, you, you need to be keeping the Sabbath laws. That says something to us as well, by the way, about how we need to deal with a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. Don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And people can be led astray for a time. I've known Christians who, who are wonderful Christians, and I'm positive that they're Christians, but, but I've known them to be led astray by false teachers. I've seen it happen. There was a guy, when we were in Pauly's Island, there's a guy that came and established a church in Myrtle Beach. Several members of our church and from other good churches in the area left and followed this guy, and, and then he fleeced them. He, he ripped them off. He got them to invest in some investment scheme, and then he bolted and got out of town. So we've got to be wise as serpent, innocent, innocent as doves. So sometimes the elect can be led astray for a period of time. We've got to exercise discernment, and we've got to listen to others in the body of Christ. He says, see, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be an unmistakable thing, is what he's saying. You won't have to have other people telling you, oh, he's out there, he's out there, he's out there. Not like it was this time. No, it's going to be so obvious that you won't miss it. So don't be led astray. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh-huh. What, what, wait, what? what? What he's talking about is, is, is that, that, that there's always going to be those who make the mistake. But the vultures will gather there. And need to be careful. Don't gather with vultures. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We see all that. In the Revelation itself, we see the sun and moon and stars, right, all wiped out, the moon turned to blood, the sun not giving its light, the stars falling from the sky. This is all stuff that John tells us about in the Revelation as well. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
So we'll see him coming again as he left, and that's exactly what the angels tell the disciples in Acts 1, that, that he'll come again exactly the same way. But what is the sign of the Son of Man? Well, it, it, in Revelation 12, we get this uh, configuration of stars in the heaven. It's not... Uh, easy to see it, but but once you see it, you can't mistake it. In, in Revelation 12, that talks about constellations and the coming together of the constellations in such a way that, that it shows the, the woman giving birth and the dragon coming after it. And these are all starry constellations that are being told about here. And so here, in the heaven, the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man, that's going to be the same kind of thing. And he'll send out his angels, and with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So we see all of this in the book of the Revelation. John tells us all these same things are going to happen in in Revelation, and we're going to see these signs in the heavens. And so we do need to be able to riddle out these kinds of things. Um, fortunately, there are people who, who do see these things and who do look for these things. But but we just need, we, all of us don't have to be experts in these kinds of things, but we do need to listen to when there's a sign in the heaven that, that presages, predates the coming of the Messiah so that we can be prepared. And then the angels will come out and gather the elect. And we see that again in the book of the Revelation. Next, we're going to finish up in Romans 10, verses 1 to 13, and Paul's continuing to to talk about what Jesus means and what the incorporation of the Gentiles mean for the Jewish community. And he's specifically talking about those who have not come to faith in Christ. And so he's trying to to get to the issue of how can God have a covenant with his people in the way that that we believe that he does, and, and then some of these people be excluded at the end of the day, from co- from that covenant benefit of eternal life, and and does Paul take? Does he relish that? Does he relish saying that? Is it some sort of vindictiveness on Paul's part because these people have persecuted him? And here he's at pains to say, "Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved." I continue to love my people no matter what they do to me in the same way that Jesus loved the people who persecuted him and prayed for them on the cross. In the same way that Stephen prayed for those people that are, who were persecuting and stoning him to death. And Paul says, no, my attitude is, is not changed toward my people. They continue to be my people, my tribe. But now God's incorporated these Gentiles in, and now y'all are my tribe too. He's, so he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, that sounds a lot like what Jesus says to the uh, Samaritan woman in John 4, you Samaritans worship you know not what. The Messiah comes from the Jews. So he, Jesus, he, he says, you don't have understanding. You don't have knowledge. And for Paul to then apply that to the Jewish community is to say, they don't either. They missed it. They missed it. And, and you know, it's obvious, <laughs> right? They crucified him. That's the whole story. They don't have knowledge. They're not seeing things rightly for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. So what he's, what he's, what he's uh, distinguishing here is, is what, he, what we ended yesterday with, which is he's distinguishing the righteousness that comes through faith versus works righteousness. <clears throat> so he says they seek to establish their own righteousness. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that mean? 
mean? He's the end of the law. Does it mean the law is no more? No. He's the fulfillment of the law. So his righteousness is the one we grab onto. Doesn't mean we don't seek to emulate him and to follow his example. It's two totally different things. No. He is the end of the law. What does that mean to be the end of the law? It means that there is no punishment phase. We're all guilty, but the end of the law is punishment. It, it is judgment. And what he says is, no, for everyone who believes, Christ is the end of that, because there is no judgment for those who stand positionally in faith in Jesus, because his righteousness is imputed to us, and God looks on us as though he were looking on his son, because we love his son. So if sin, if the confession of sin, confessio means to agree, and so if we're agreeing with God about the nature of sin as he's revealed it, then, the, then, the most, then we recognize that his judgment falls on sin, and it's an abomination in his eyes. But there's a second confession. The second confession is we agree, confessio, we agree with God concerning his son and his righteousness. So we're saying we agree with your definition of righteousness. And so then when we do, we receive the benefits of that righteousness against our sin. For Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, good luck with that. For the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's to bring Christ down. Or who will descend in the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So that, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So those passages before, don't say in your heart who will ascend or who will descend. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Where's that come from? Moses. It's from Deuteronomy 30. So he's quoting Moses to say that, that it's all about faith. Because we don't know how to bring down righteousness. We don't know how to bring it up from the dead. So the word is near you. In other words, we have the Holy Spirit in us to proclaim that word of faith and confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. And it's in that that we are saved. What are we saved from? We're saved from judgment on sin according to the law. Because no matter how many great works we do, we're going to fail. And particularly after the the temple is destroyed, there's no way to atone for those sins, except for atonement was already done. The atonement was already done on the cross. And the proof that the atonement was successful and accepted as atonement is the resurrection. And so we believe those things in order that we too might be saved by believing. And then that frees us up to do the works God's given us to do without fear of judgment. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, Paul says, Jew and Greek, everybody that calls on him will be saved. Period. End of sentence. That was the message that Moses was given in Deuteronomy. He says, you know, look, there's no hope for you, except there is hope for you. Because the hope isn't in you, it's in him. Him who is faithful, him who has made promises, he will fulfill those promises in spite 
of your unfaithfulness. Doesn't mean it won't go unpunished. Doesn't mean that you won't pay a price for it in this life. But what it does mean is, is if you put your faith in him in the way that Moses did, then all will work out right in the end and you'll be saved. And it's the same in Jesus. Nothing changed. Nothing changed at all. We're continuing to put our hope and our faith in the living God. But now we have something they didn't have. They had the Red Sea. They had the provision in the wilderness. They had the defeat of Og and Sihon. We have the resurrection as the, the sure and certain sign of our hope. 